I don't think we really know what kind of shape we're in because we're not measuring as much as we should be. Um, because we don't know the long-term impacts of, uh, you know, diminishing pollinators, let's just say, or any kind of any wildlife, I don't think we know the long-term impacts of that. And I agree, you know, I've got many relatives in conventional agriculture, um, you know, chasing bushels. And I understand the struggle it is for all farmers to earn a living and that if they find a formula that works for them, to stay on the land and earn a living. I respect that. You know, I totally respect that. However, I think the point we need to measure more of what's the value of whatever we're producing. What's the true value and what's the true cost? It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Regenerative farming. Boy, we talk about it a lot, but not nearly enough. Uh, I've talked to people uh, all over the country and really some around the world that are either into regenerative farming or if even from a consumers or chefs and they're trying to source food from regenerative farming well my my guest today is right in the middle of all that he's 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 a farmer that's been on a journey and helping others on their journey as well and i want to welcome matt meyer matt welcome to farm to table talk hello roger nice nice to be with you you know matt there is a lot of interest in regenerative farming. And like I mentioned, it's people that think they want to do it, think they should do it. It's chefs that feel like they're drawn that direction too. And, and then there are consumers that for various reasons think that this should be one of the things that they check the list. You know, they've got their grocery list of what they need to be buying to be able to prepare food at home. Let's explain where you are in all of that. So you, I assume, are practicing some of all of it, both of consuming what you and others grow, but also growing and farming. And so let's talk about it. Let's first explain. I like the fact that you said that it's a journey because it, it definitely is. Um, regenerative farming or what we call regenerative agriculture, you know, there's, first of all, there's a number of different definitions of that based on the type of crop that you're growing. So I'm going to be uh, focusing on grass-fed beef and what regenerative agriculture means to us as we raise grass-fed beef. Um, now, if you are growing a grain or a fruit or a vegetable, you know, there's going to be there's going to be different definitions of what regenerative means in those categories. Um, but for us, um, it really is, uh, I mean, I, I think I have to kind of explain a little on how I got into it sure do. to make it have some context. So, um, I, I grew up on a, a small farm in central Minnesota and I was involved in 4-H and heavily involved in the farm. I was the only son and, uh, me and my sister closest in age really kind of took care of the farm while dad worked on a factory. So we grew up really close to the land. And uh, I could see the farm was more of a hobby that cost money than it was 
uh, of profit producer. So no one had to convince me to go away to college. I happily went. Uh, that seemed easy compared to the work on the farm, and I knew I needed to have a career. So I um, went to college, and I always was interested in business and food and agriculture. So um, I ended up working in conventional food for 20 years and had built a marketing business that I had the opportunity to sell. Um, and I did. And it gave me a few years to reflect on what I wanted to do next. And at the same time, I was moving my family back to a lot that I purchased that was adjacent to my farm because I so wanted them. I was moving from the suburbs and I so wanted them to experience that close to nature stewarding kind of upbringing that I had. And even though I wasn't running a farm, I thought, well, maybe some of it will rub off. And uh, I got there, um, and this is in a part of Minnesota that's uh, many wetlands, rivers, streams, hills, and there had been a lot of tilling of the land since I had left 20 years earlier. And it, and quite frankly, I didn't recognize the land. And a lot of the chaos of nature was no longer there. Like, you know, the the frogs, the moths, the butterflies. And what really got my attention was um, when, when I was a young kid with my sisters, we would go around in the summertime and gather up fireflies in a jar and put some leaves in there and put it on our shelf in our room for a nightlight. Yeah. And I went to go do that on a, you know, usually they're out on a humid summer night, a warm summer night, and I couldn't find any where there used to be Tens of thousands of them in the meadows that I knew, there weren't any. So that got me digging about what was going on with our ecosystems and habitat and uh, did some research. And I, some research that I found led to the, the biggest single impact you can have on the food system is to regeneratively, holistically graze cattle for their lifetime. And, you know, this is in the days of, it wasn't quite like today where the cow is the uh, villain, but, um, <clears throat> you know, that, that seemed kind of odd. But the reason being is if you have the cattle on the land and you are grazing, you're building the soil. And that the fastest way to build soil is to have animal impact on the land. And as you know, most of our animals now aren't on the land they're in large buildings and you don't see many out on the land so i thought oh gee i did this when i was a kid grass-fed beef we didn't feed grain you know we had very few inputs primarily because it was early in that cycle of nitrogen made out of petrochemical and sprays uh and partly because we were broke we couldn't buy the the inputs. So we had to figure out how to make the farm work with manure and cultivating and really an organic system. I just didn't know that at the time. Um, so, you know, we, so I, I realized this and I got involved with grass fed beef and this was, you know, 15 years ago. Um, 
And I was very excited to do it. And I found out that there was a lot to learn. There's a lot to learn about how to finish cattle on grass, the genetics, the forage, um, the management, and uh, been learning ever since. Still haven't figured it all out. But what I've been able to witness with my eyes is the change over time. And so I can see when I walk through our fields now, I can see monarchs, you know, and I can see birds coming back and I can see earthworms and I can see frogs at a much higher propensity than I did 20 years ago, 23 years ago when I moved back to the farm. Um, and there's, of course, there's data and science to back that up on both sides. You know, um, the number of endangered uh, pollinators. Um, we work with Audubon. You know, bugs are closely related to birds. And um, that got me looking at the Minnesota DNR list of moths and butterflies that are endangered. And there was over, over two dozen on the list in Minnesota alone. And uh, some of them are those little skipper butterflies. And, and I remember on the farm walking through our farmyard, there'd literally be hundreds of them getting up as you walked in the mud puddles and in the, you know, in the water grass. And, and now it's rare if you see one. It happens over time, you know. So I well, thought I, if I, I just interject something there because I've, yeah. I, I, I hear you and I've experienced some of the same things and you've heard some of my shows before and I've talked about going out and getting lightning bugs and put them in jars and, you know, the lack of earthworms yeah. and, and we've had several people on talking about the other wildlife. But, you know, the thing is that what we've measured and really what um, has been helped along by land grant universities and others is to to look at progress of how many bushels and and then, mm -hmm. you know, how much money you can make per bushel. But nobody gives you credit for how many earthworms you save or butterflies you save or tadpoles or frogs or all the other things that make up nature. It's just not been a target at all. In some respects, you know, Matt, after I hear these stories a few times and, and I'm enjoying hearing this story from you and, and appreciate it, it makes me almost surprised that we're not in worse shape than we are. Uh, because there's been so much priority, all the magazines you pick up on how to be a farmer, it's all about trying to get yields increased. And nobody's paying attention to all of these kind of peripheral issues that make up nature. And uh, I'm kind of interrupting you in your story just, just to cool. kind of note that and think that, man, we can, we can do so much better. So you're trying to do better. Well, yeah. And I, you know, when you say it, it's surprising, we're not in worse shape than we are. I don't think we really know what kind of shape we're in. True. I don't think because we're not measuring as much as we should be, um, because we don't know the long-term impacts of, uh, you know, diminishing pollinators, let's just say, or any kind of any wildlife. I don't think we know the long-term impacts of that. And, and I agree, you know, I've got many relatives in conventional agriculture, um, you know, chasing bushels. And I understand, you know, the struggle it is for all farmers to earn a living and that if they find a formula that works for them to stay on the land and earn a living, I respect that. You know, I totally respect that. Um, however, I think we need to 
exactly to your point, we need to measure more of what's the value of whatever we're producing. What's the true value and what's the true cost? So if we're looking at, you know, what's the cost to pollinators or what's the cost to our water cycle or what's the cost to carbon emission or what's the cost of um, the nutrition density or the declining nutrition density of our food and how does that affect our health? You know, there's many, uh, many measurements that we could be looking at and uh, I think we'll our, our eyes will begin to be open. There are, you know, there, the tide is turning. People are starting to look at this. Um, you know, for example, we're working with the USDA and uh, several universities on a big nutrient density study to figure out what really is in our food and 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 the type of practices that went into raising that beef. How does that reflect? in the nutrition of that food. And then, well, you know, ultimately, how does that help us and our immune systems and our health and our disease? You know, uh, they're all linked. We're all linked that way. And uh, I think we need to pay attention to that. You know, Matt, I was just in a clubhouse room the other day and and where some people were talking. And on the one hand, they, they've all heard about smaller scale agriculture and and so forth and then they're around like you are around uh farmers that are going having to expand they feel and get bigger and bigger and bigger but one of the things that came up in the conversation that that even those that had gotten bigger they still just barely get by mm-hmm. so whether or not you have a smaller scale grass-fed operation or something else or you've got or you've ended up got 2,000 acres of corn and soybeans and you're pretty much monocropping. I guess there's two crops there oftentimes. Mm-hmm. You still end up having uh, at, at least somebody in the family having a job in the city to bring in enough mm-hmm. money to pay insurance and pay the other things. And, and one of the people that was talking the other day was saying a pretty large scale farming operation that they had to have two off farm incomes to supplement uh, and by just looking at it looking at the size of acres they're farming you think they must be rich they're doing really really well and and they probably will be rich when they die uh and you know the, <laughs> as far as the land costs are concerned less equity yeah but, but chasing chasing those margins are are tough uh and uh, at, at every scale in agriculture Yes, it sure is. Um, And I think, you know, some of the recent developments of, uh, you know, the price of uh, the petrochemical fertilizer and the implications of the Ukraine war and and all that driving inputs up and costlier for conventional ag, you know, I I, it it kind of calls to mind, Okay, where the questions of where is our inputs coming from? What are they based upon? Um, how much do they cost? And is there another way? You know, it's kind of like energy, you know, like, do we want to be energy independent? Or do we want to be dependent on other countries and for the inputs for our agriculture? And of course, I'm very biased. I understand I'm biased. Um, but I, I'm not completely ignorant to the conventional agriculture either, having family and having experienced some of it myself, especially conventional food, uh, been very involved in that. Um, so, you know, I think it gives us a little 
wake up call uh, some of these recent happenings as to, you know, is there another formula, you know, and is there another way? And the easy answer that I run into, um, the easy question or answer that I run into is, well, that's cute and all what you're doing, Matt, but we've got to feed the world. And to do that, you know, we got to do what we got to do. And if that means GMOs and glyphosate and neonicotinoids and, you know, <laughs> ammonia anhydrous and all that, well, then that's just what it means. And I, one of the most moving discoveries for me was in the area of beef. If we took our CRP land that is supposed to be less desirable for cropping and the land that's devoted to corn that ends up feeding cattle, which are ruminants, which really aren't designed to eat a starch diet, that heavy of a starch diet, they'll gain fat on it, but they're, they're not really designed for that. They're designed to break down cellulose with four stomachs. But if we took those two land bases, not to mention all of our existing pastures, we could raise the same amount of beef that we are today in our CAFO uh, environment. There's that the acreage is there to be able to graze. And then we get all the benefits of building back the soil in those uh, targeted air, uh, targeted uh, land base. Um, because I can tell you through soil testing, when we convert in my community project that I work with, I work with 15 adjacent landowners around my farm with very small patches of land. But we, when, a, when the ground has been row cropped and we come in to change it to a perennial grassland for grazing, invariably, the organic matter is hovering right around 1%. For healthy soil to, to be able to really regenerate itself, it's, I would say it's somewhere around a minimum of 5% organic matter. So we have our work to do to get that organic matter back to a place where it wouldn't be so dependent on inputs. Um, and we can use the sun and, and manure and the, the, the tools that nature gives us. Um, so when there's a lot of land to, to regenerate. And if we can do that with our animals, we can also eliminate some of the pollution issues and other things that go along with KFOs. Well, let's talk about that land for a second, because if where you are in the middle of Minnesota, uh, that land could be corn and soybeans instead of grass. Oh, yeah. So, and if you're working at your own farm and others, uh, is is that the, pretty much the case? I mean, are you making a decision that this is going to be pasture when I probably could, you know, go straight corn on it. Is there a lot of oh. the land that's like that? Oh, yeah. I mean, we're right on the fringe of, of wooded and, and prairie. Um, so the, all the surrounding farmland is corn and soy. Mm -hmm. and yeah. They look at you a little crazy when they see you not planting, planting corn. Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, I am crazy, you know, that and uh, not only that, but it's not neat. It's not, you know, it, there's there's things like weeds growing in our pastures and it's it's different, you know, and and um, I guess I take some pride in that because it's noticeable and people start asking questions. It's like, well, OK, what are you doing here? I mean, this looks like a mess. 
and you know you're moving these cattle around every day and you're running poly wires across fields and you're doing things that are different and uh and uh, i take pride in that because that's part of what we need to do is look at things differently and not just do the same thing over and over regardless of the result so we so you go down the you can just drive down the road around there and you can see the people that are doing things different. And you're one of those that are doing something different. And so you, we've got pasture. We'll talk about the pasture a little bit, but then you got cattle. So are you, um, you got cows and you got a, got a bull and you're calving and raising them or are you buying calves and putting them on grass? No, we, we've got a cow herd. Um, now, you know, to be clear, Thousand Hills, the brand sources from 30 to 40 producers every year, you know, up and down the Midwest, down to Oklahoma. We kind of follow the growing season for finishing cattle uh, in the Midwest, going down to Oklahoma and back up to Minnesota. But on our farm, you know, we're one of those producers for the brand. Uh, and yeah, we've we've got, you know, we've got an 80 cow herd and we got 80 calves and we got 80 yearlings and we got 82 year olds and we divide them up into two herds mama cows and and finishers and uh and we move them around and and everybody you know that you know the stories about the fireflies and all that everybody has stories too about parents or grandparents that had cattle mm -hmm. and they love seeing the cattle on the land and they are so appreciative if we bring them by their place and they can watch them for a few days as they go by. And that's that's part of the fun of all of it. You know, it opens up conversations with people. I had no I didn't even know who they were and they were neighbors, you know, and and now you know, they know. Cows aren't the only critters that can eat grass, though. I mean, I, um, obviously, you can do it with goats and and sheep or ruminant animals as well. Are, is there any room for them within your organization or are you all beef? Well, I can tell you, we've experimented with goats for, for clearing out invasive species like prickly ash and uh, buckthorn and things like that. They love it. So we'll, we'll bring in some goats for that purpose, but they're a little harder to keep in than cattle. Cattle, we can run one single poly wire hot, you know, and they'll stay in. Goats, not so much. You know, you mentioned that, but even hogs, and we've got hogs on our farm, and they love forage. You know, they they're uh, you know probably a third of their diet comes from forage on our farm. Yeah, I don't understand that. Uh, they they're they're missing a few chunks of stomach that the uh, that the others have, but they could. But I hear that too. Uh, I hear people that getting getting them out there, and they they belong out, and certainly chickens. So yep, can, chickens too. You know, yep, we've all, got almost everything. So at some point, let's kind of I want to transition into what is the Thousand Hills and and you talked about a bigger program because what you've taken us to so far is that you had a background, you were away, you came back from the farm, you you became a fan, a believer in regenerative, you've got uh, a system where that you're doing grass-fed beef and so forth, but now you're alluding to a broader a broader package because at, at at some point once you decide you're going to have cattle then you have to figure out how you're going to process them and how you're going to market them and for people who got the first part down oftentimes they stumble on the second part 
because trying to get that out to the get it out to the marketplace and find uh, locker plants or processing plants um, is a is a big headache. And then trying to trying to market's a challenge too. So when you face that, what led to the development of this Thousand Hills program? Well, you you know I've done all of that. You know I've worked farmers markets. I've uh, tried to do it all from a selling standpoint on an individual farmer basis, you know, and it's hard enough to farm, let alone process and market. So we do aggregate from our producers. And fortunately, you know, we've, we've been around for 20 years. So we have great relationships with processing and we have the scale to be able to have leverage with that. Sir, you know, I mean, if you're coming in with five animals, it's hard to have any leverage, but because of our scale and because of our long-term relationships, what I want to do for our producers is, cre- is create and provide a market so they can focus on these practices that we're talking about and we can pay them a premium for those cattle to come in. We take care of the processing. We take care of the sales and marketing and distribution. And you know, I'm happy to say that we're now distributed to all 50 states so there is demand in, in all markets for what we're doing. Um, but that, you know, and, and yet every one of our producers, I think, still does sell some locally, which is great. You know, they're going to get a retail margin. They sell it locally, whether that's five head or 50 head, whatever they want to do, they're still marketing that locally. Um, but, you know, we, we try to keep keep the cattle close to processing, work on decentralized processing. So it's not all consolidated into one place because we saw during the pandemic, if too much is consolidated into one place, what can happen to our supply chains? Um, We didn't experience that. I was so overjoyed. We had a 95% uh, fulfillment rate all the way through the pandemic because we could move around to our decentralized plants based upon what was happening with the pandemic. So, I could go to some stores out here in California and find your product. What are yes. For? Well, the you brand, look for the, the, the uh, and is it in the frozen case or the fresh case or what? Generally, it's in the fresh case. Um, some smaller stores will put it frozen because they can't; they don't have the velocity to keep it fresh. Um, but yes, I mean you you. you you look for the right retailer, really. And that's what I tell people in general. You know, I go through the same thing that everyone else does for every category outside of grass-fed beef. How do you figure out which brand to buy? What are the claims that you should be looking for? How, how, what do you look for on the label that knows that it reflects your values, all that? It's a full-time job. So what I urge people to do is find the retailer that's doing the vetting, the natural food store, the local food co-op. Those are the types of stores we work with because we have aligned values and we make sure our product has got all the certifications and all the cleanliness that they are looking for on the label so that they can offer it to their customers. Because we as individuals can't possibly keep up with every food category that we consume. So you got to trust your retailer. I mean, sure, you can order it online, but then you've got to order so much product online. And I just, I, our distribution system for refrigerated fresh food in this country is very efficient it's way more efficient than shipping a box overnight somewhere that's you know a box of meat well that's that's quite a bit i mean i've talked to a lot of people that are doing grass-fed programs and 
marketing direct. But to be able to have a network like you're talking about and be able to deal with the fresh uh, nationwide, there aren't many. I don't know who else is doing what you're doing then. No, I don't. I don't know of anybody. I mean, I am happy to say, you know, we're 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 that overnight success that took twenty years to build. Um, <laughs> that's, so. a, that's the thing about those overnight successes. You know, I wanted I want to go back to the farms for a minute because sure. because it used to be uh, you couldn't count on grass year round in Minnesota. There's a time where some where there's a, a snow and. Uh, you know, we grew up in Illinois, and we had times of snow too. So, what do they eat when uh, when you get when you don't have pastures that you can graze on? That's a great question, and I love answering that question actually because we um, here's what we do: um, we uh, graze from the middle of May to sometime in December. Okay. Um. And when we have too much grass in May and June, we harvest it, roll it up into big round bales, put it in a a tube, a plastic tube, so that wrap it with plastic so that it can ferment. We make hay in a day to to preserve as many nutrients as possible. The sun degrades the nutrients right out of it when you leave it lay in the sun for three, four days to dry. So we want this as highly... um, um, full of nutrition as possible. So we do that and we, and we put these uh, bales on the various fields that they came from. And then in the winter, we duplicate exactly what we do in the summer. Only we unroll the bales on the land so that the cattle can then cycle those nutrients right back into the field instead of taking it off and either selling it or feeding them in a lot somewhere. And we can do that all winter long, except for maybe about 10 days where we have below zero wind chills. They don't mind cold temperatures, but wind's tough on anybody and including animals. And then we provide, we're, as we're moving them around, we have escape hatches where we can get them to a building for a windbreak. Not necessarily, they don't even need to go inside the building. Even if we have it available, they generally won't go inside. They just need to get out of the wind. So then we put them in these windbreaks or a valley, a deep valley that'll get them out of the wind if that weather changes. We're always adjusting our grazing plans, whether it's winter or summer, based on the weather. Um, so that's what we do. We just cycle those nutrients right back into the land um, all winter long. That's a good answer. Um, I, it, I get uncomfortable, though, just hearing about it because I, I know what it's like when you go out and it's 25 below zero and you still have to go break the ice so that they can get some some water. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and somebody's got to unroll that hay. And, yeah. And so it uh, can be a little uncomfortable. That's why they call it work. That, uh, That's right. Yeah. It, it, builds, yeah. Builds character. Yeah. Yeah. And when you do it that way. And you're not finishing on on grain. Um, no. But so whether like two years, two years to get them to market? Yep. 24 to 28 months, you know, and that depends on your growing season. Like for us, we're calving from April 15th to June 1st. So we get that second summer when they're on grass, it's easier to finish than on hay. So we... We graze them for that summer and and take advantage of the green forage. So we'll go, you know, we're 26 months 
or so when we uh, harvest ours on our farm. I know some people that are pretty almost there. They some of them have to finish with a little bit of corn sometimes. Uh, well, they think they they think they do, but they probably don't. No. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, I think the thing is too is that it's all heading the right direction. And and I yep. think that with these all the farms you're working with, uh, they're doing similar programs. What about the genetics? Are they similar genetics, or is there a lot of variety in the breeds you're using? Well, there's some variety in breeds, but there's a genetic phenotype that we look for that finishes well on grass, and that's uh, in, you know the English heritage genetics it doesn't matter about breed so much it matters that it's that we're going back decades to get to the right phenotype because you know for who knows thousands of years farmers selected their cattle for reproduction based upon how they did that summer after they calved right you gather them up in the fall you look at them you go okay well that heifer really did well i might want to keep her as a cow or that bull did really well i might want to keep that one as a bull so we selected them based on how they performed on forage. Well, in the last 60 years or so, we're selecting more on how they'll perform in a feedlot than how they will perform on forage. So it's a moderate framed animal. Yes, it's black Angus, but only about 5% of the black Angus breed today finishes well on grass and red Angus and, uh, you know, uh, a shorthorn or a, a Murray Gray or, you know, a Hereford. You know, depending on the producer's background, you know, that'll determine. But still, 90% of what we harvest is either red or black Angus. Yeah, a lot of lot of Angus. I, I always favored black Baldies with the Hereford Angus. Angus oh, yeah. Angus. They perform so well. They really do. Uh, it's, you know, it's it's really, really encouraging what you've got going and i think as you as you look at this as where you are with with this journey um i i assume you have to deal with the fact that there's a lot of the commodity product is cheaper uh less expensive and is is that something that that is i am stumbling around here because it's, it seems people are looking to, to good values and uh, do you do you find yourself needing to explain the fact that you may not be the same price point, but you get what you pay for? You know, not as much today as maybe 15 years ago. Uh, people, you know, consumers now know that there's going to be a delta between the conventional beef and grass-fed beef with any claims at all. Uh, but what's really the, our biggest thorn in our side is 80% of the grass fed beef that's consumed in this country is imported from other countries. Mm. So, you know, and maybe someone's, you know, monitoring, are they truly grass fed? Maybe there's certification that's happening. I know we're third party certified just so that we don't have to trust that Matt is, you know, telling the truth. So we th have third party land a market from savory on all of our measurements of soil and water and plants. And we have our American grass fed association that certifies our whole protocol about not confinement and managed grazing and all that. But what's happening with that import grass fed beef, that's what comes in cheap and really undercuts us because a meat buyer looks at it and goes, 
well, grass-fed, grass-fed, okay, maybe a few certifications for Thousand Hills, but really all I need is grass-fed, so I'm going to put that on the shelf. Well, it's, you know, there's a lot of issues with that. I won't get into all of them, but you can imagine when your market is being flooded with a cheap, similar product that it causes issues. No, that's right. And and it's a it's a long ways to haul stuff too. I mean, uh, you know, some of that fresh product is still getting is getting flown in, but even some of them, the you know, the cryovac and chilled and and so forth, still when you yeah, it's from halfway around the world versus you know within within the continent, um, that's got to be concerning to some people as well. Well, true. I mean, there's food miles involved with there, and then but it's also frozen i mean they, they couldn't keep the shelf life if it was put on a ship and shipped fresh so it really is frozen and then it's slacked out and then it's sold as fresh and you know it comes from countries where you know there's large herds and cheap land and so they can they can figure out how to financially do it you know australia for example or or south america um i mean god bless them for growing grass-fed beef if that's really what's happening but I'm not sure. And here's the thing. If we want to fix our food system, if we want to improve our food system, then we need to improve our soil. Because as a nation, we can't just deplete our soil or we're done. It's happened to other civilizations before, many times throughout history. And we're on that path. Um, We are really on that path. So, you know, let's, uh, let's support how the U.S. can actually feed itself and feed others, much like we always have, only build our soil back and build our habitat back and help our water cycle and sequester carbon by having perennial get grasslands growing grass in Minnesota from the middle of March to into December. Um, you know, that's, well, that's true. And there's a, a lot of the world, if you go back hundreds, even thousands of years, that are deserts today that didn't used to be deserts. And so we still are creating deserts. You're doing the opposite. You're taking it a, a different, a different direction. Well, I think it's, it's really impressive to what you've been able to do. And I think that one of the things, Matt, that strikes me from conversation with, with you today, that's, a, that's different from some of the other conversations we've had is your ability to, to work with a broader group and to be able to get distribution. Uh, as broadly as you had and who would have who would have seen that back when you left the farm the first time uh over 20 years ago um you really couldn't have pictured that you know because i i I know something about what it was like way back then in the midwest and we used to have farmer feeders all over the place and Mm -hmm. so you know people that was were feeding their cattle and maybe getting a load of cattle in from the west and then the winter they fed them and they had the shell corn that they fed them that they grew on their farm in minnesota indiana michigan and so forth and those are almost all gone now and they've been replaced with big commercial feedlots for the most part nebraska and kansas and texas panhandle and a couple other places but not much is left i bet you have to drive a long ways to see uh, what used to be traditional farmer feeder in minnesota if you're not doing a program like you're describing oh it's true i mean just to find cattle you know cattle on the land you have to drive quite a ways let alone finishing cattle on the land 
So I, you know, I love your perspective. And I think all of us guys getting up there in years have a great perspective to share with everybody because we saw how it could operate earlier. Not that it was easy or that profitable, but if we could somehow mesh the two together where you have farmers farming land that they can actually steward stacking enterprises that create enough profit that they can stay on the land and earn enough, you know, to, to um, keep going. You know, if there's a, there's, if there's a way to do that, then we've got this whole young group of farmers, this whole generation of farmers that are coming up that want to do that, you know, that want to change the way things are. It's just figuring out how do you make that financially viable so that you don't need a million dollars in the equipment and you don't need to run 2,000, 5,000 acres that you can actually steward 40 acres and grow multiple revenue streams on that land and be valued enough by society that you get paid for what the value is in that package. That's the dream. I, I feel we you've almost... You've almost expressed what would be a vision statement if we were doing a strategic plan. Uh, because you were saying you know, we could do this, we could do that. So if you were going to rephrase this into like a vision statement for the kind of enterprises that you have or here, even your organization and look ahead, you know, five or 10 years, what does the future look like? If it, if we make the progress we need to make and keep going the directions that you're suggesting here. What is success going to look like then? Well, I'm 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 biased to what I just described in that uh, again, smaller farms, regenerative practices, multiple species, a strong enough market to earn a profit on what you're producing, which we're not there yet. I mean, our producers are struggle for what I can pay and still compete at retail. We're not there yet. My farm struggles financially uh, yet, even though, you know, so it's that smaller farm, multiple streams. And, you know, our broader vision for the company is to save our food system from collapse by implementing regenerative practices nationwide. And that doesn't have to be all done by us, but that's just an overarching vision of where, where we believe, I believe, our food system needs to move. Um, now, how we get there is our mission statement, nourishing soil, plants, cattle, and people by holistically grazing cattle for their lifetime. So if I'm somewhere maybe in the Midwest and I've got a cow herd and there's many times I wish I did, uh, I'd kind of like to go back to those days in, in a way, but would like to be a part of your program, how how would I have a chance to kind of get in a lineup like that to, to be part of your program? Well, it's really not that hard. You, you go, you, you know, it's contact information on our website. It's, you know, lifetimegrazed.com is our domain. Um, and then we just start talking about practices, you know, and, and what, pra you know, many, now many farmers and ranchers come to us now when they're 90% of the way there. I mean, they've, they've done their research. They, they're, they're investing in these practices because they know, farmers know this more than anybody else. 
I have to leave this place better than I found it, or there's not going to be something for the next generation. And so farmers and ranchers are starting to understand like, okay, I can't just deplete this. I need to leave something or grow, build something back so that my next generation has a chance to stay on the land because that's, you know, that's the dream. Stay on the land, keep, keep growing food, doing it in a way that is responsibly stewarding the earth. Um, but it's not that hard. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, the hardest the hardest part of it is the shift between the ears. That's that's the hardest part. And figuring out how to make the transition financially. Well, then there's just two other groups that I think I want to touch base on then. And, and that is either consumers or like chefs and retailers. Because I have some of all of those that listen to the podcast. So there may be consumers that say, I want to try to find your product. So what do you tell them? Well, we do sell e-commerce, um, so they can find us Thousand Hills, Lifetime Grazed. But I prefer that they find a local retailer. If they can't find the product that they want, whether it's ours or someone else's, at their local, either regional chain or um, food, uh, natural food store or local food co-op, that's where I urge people to go support because that's Again, that whole vetting process that they go through. I mean, we go through two-year vetting processes to make sure we're the right product to get on the shelf um, with those retailers. So there's that. And then there's e-commerce as a backup if you can't get what you want. So what if I'm a chef and I want to start sourcing product like this? What, what do they do? Well, you know, we have distribution nationally. So the chances are there's a distributor that could bring product to them. Matt, I really like what you're doing. And, uh, you know, su support support the journey and we'll certainly try some of the product. Although I, I buy my share of grass-fed now and I'm supporting some at local farmers markets. And I've gotten used to using frozen, too. I, yeah. But, um, I mean, most of, the steaks, most of the steaks I eat are frozen. I just thaw yeah. them when I want. Yeah. I really appreciate the conversation. I think you're doing a, a great job. And I want to thank you for being on Farm to Table Talk. Well, thank you for the kind words. I appreciate the support and the chance to tell our story. And, uh, you know, once maybe we'll cross paths again sometime soon. I hope so. Thanks. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. 